Welcome to History Hub's Educational Resources, a podcast series for all history students, young and old, from the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information on the series, go to historyhub.ie. My name is Dr Jennifer Wellington. I lecture Modern History in UCD's School of History, and I'm the series editor of History Hub's Educational Resources. In this episode, Dr Susanna Reardon is going to talk to you about cultural policy and religion in independent Ireland. Hello, I'm Susanna Reardon from the School of History in UCD, and I want to talk to you today a little bit about cultural policy in independent Ireland, particularly with regard to religion, specifically Catholicism, and also uh, the Gaelicisation policy, if you want to call it that. Um, I'm going to start with the question that was asked on the, um, the Higher Leaving Cert paper in 2018, which asked pretty much how successful were attempts to make Ireland a Catholic and Gaelic society. And the reason I want to start with that is because I think it's one of the questions that can be very difficult to answer, not least because of the way it's phrased. It makes a lot of assumptions that there were attempts to make Ireland a Catholic and Gaelic society, that we're not told who was making those attempts, and then we're asked to assess the success. So I would interrogate the question a little bit and think about what is meant by Gaelic, what is meant by Catholic. Were attempts made to do any such thing, to make Ireland a Gaelic and Catholic society, and if so, by whom? Now, I'm going to assume for the sake of this talk that what is being asked is about the attempts that were made by church and state, hand in hand with each other, to bring about a Gaelic and Catholic Ireland. And by the Catholic Church, what is meant is the bishops. But it should be remembered that neither the members of political parties who formed governments nor the members of the hierarchy were monolithic. When discussing the Catholic or any other church, very often people refer to the church as if they meant the bishops, but I think it's important to remember there are many aspects to any church. And in the case of the Catholic Church, that means the Pope, the bishops, the secular and lay clergy. And it also, and this I think is important, it means the faithful, the members of the church. And the reason I want to emphasise this is that efforts to make Ireland a more Catholic society, because I'm not going to agree that it was an attempt to make it a Catholic society, but attempts to make it a more Catholic society very often came from lay people and lay organisations. For example, the Catholic Truth Society led the campaign for literary censorship. Likewise, if we look at the question of Gaelic organisations, such as the Gaelic League or the GAA, they often led the field in promoting Uh, In the case of the first, the emphasis on taught Irish and Irish being taught through the schools as a means of reviving the language, as indeed did the Irish National Teachers Organisation, although they would later come to regret that decision. Uh, Similarly, um, the GAA led the field in the promotion of, for example, hurling over rugby. However, while I think those points do need interrogation, I'm going to assume for the sake of this that we are talking about government measures, and in the case of religion, that we're talking about Uh, government measures that were either supported or advocated by the Catholic bishops. So what I'm proposing to do is to look at cultural nationalism and religion in the early decades of the independent state, uh, to look in order at the language policy, at church-state relations, uh, to look at legislation that might be considered overtly Catholic, and secondly, because this is discussed an awful lot in Leaving Cert Papers and on the course, to look at the significance of the Eucharistic Congress of 1932 for both church and state. Um, I think to begin with, we might talk about values, and it can be very difficult to look back from almost 100 years and to consider the way people thought about things like religion and culture. And for the sake of brevity, I think it's worth pointing out 
that there were very close relations between church and state, between the bishops and politicians. And I'm not talking there about the church-state relations. I'll come to that in a minute. What I'm talking about is the fact that the point is very often made that the Irish clergy came from similar social backgrounds to politicians and indeed to many of the faithful. There's no great class division there. They went to the same schools as politicians. They were members of the same clubs. They may indeed have been members of the same family. So we're talking about people who were brought up or who grew up perhaps sometimes in rebellion against their parents uh, in an atmosphere of cultural nationalism of the late 19th and early 20th century and also of the particular type of Catholicism that was embraced by the Catholic population in the 1920s and the 1930s. And the point that I want to make here is it's not about creating a Gaelic and Catholic Ireland. From the point of view of both cohorts, it was a Gaelic and Catholic Ireland. These were the values of the Irish people, but they had been shamefully deprived of them or prevented from giving proper expression to them by many hundreds of years of, as both thought, foreign rule. I think that's the point here. It's not about creating something from nothing. It's about giving, as both bishops and politicians would see it, proper expression to the shared values of the community. Now, a couple of points on that. One is that, to some extent, this was an imaginary community, but it was steeped in those views of cultural nationalism that could be both exclusive or inclusive. For many, cultural nationalism was deeply inclusive. Their cultural nationalism was the cultural nationalism of young Ireland that saw Irishness not as based on religion, not as based on ethnicity, but on based on the embracing of a common culture. And likewise, for many within Sinn Féin and later the political parties that grew from that, their republicanism was a republicanism of wolf tone that embraced Catholic, Protestant and dissenter. On the other hand, however, cultural nationalism could be quite exclusive. To imagine this ideal Irish person who was rural rather than urban, who played hurling rather than cricket, uh, who spoke Irish or at least wanted to speak Irish, who rejected Anglo-American culture. So there is that, that common set of values I think is there. So we can talk perhaps about church and state in that regard. With regard to the policy of reviving the Irish language. As I said, it was very much a Gaelic League policy originally. Um, it became integrated into government policy with regard to what government could do something about. A government had very limited means and opportunities, and indeed very little money and very little willingness to spend money, uh, to revive Irish in various in, in a variety of ways. What it did have control over was appointment to the civil service. And, of course, that became dependent on one's abilities within the Irish language. It was also had responsibility for the education system. And it was very much, as I said, the INTO's idea that the national schools should be used for as the primary means of reviving the, the Irish language. So we see throughout the 1920s, and regardless of change of government, we see... Um, other subjects being rolled back. It's an INTO conference in 1921 and the programme they brought out in 1922 that created the, um, the policy eventually of complete infant immersion in Irish in schools, of using Irish as a medium of instruction. This is embraced by government and extended as government changes. For example, in 1934, under a revised programme of primary instruction, Thomas Derrick, the Minister for Education, forbade teaching of English in infant classes if the competent was teacher in Irish, it was competent in Irish, and so forth. 
I think it's important, although we're talking about education, the Irish language here, to note that as time went on, very often uh, instruction in other subjects was reduced in order to emphasise Irishness uh, and the teaching of the Irish language. So it became not only that the national schools became the main means of reviving the Irish language, but reviving the Irish language became almost the main purpose of the national schools. The other purpose, of course, was the teaching of religion, and you do have that very close relationship between uh, church and state where it came to the control and the content of education. There could have been stronger means. Derrick, for example, introduced a bill which would have prevented children from being educated outside the country, so they weren't deprived of their Irish language education. Over time, the teachers became more critical of the policy as they realised that too much pressure was being put on them. We don't hear much criticism from parents, but then parents were basically um, excluded from debates about education. And here's another shared value, I would suggest, between bishops and, and um, politicians. There is a lack of trust of the common people. There is a tendency to think that they do not have a civic spirit or, as it may be, an adequate religious spirit. Um, perhaps this has class elements, but I think it is more from the politician's point of view to do with the belief that the Irish people basically were colonised people and therefore had never developed a civic spirit and they needed to be educated in one. From the bishop's point of view, there was also a certain distrust of the public. On the one hand, there was an acceptance and there was a lot of rhetoric about the Irish people are the most Christian people in the world. They are the most Catholic people in the world. They can give lectures to any other country about the simple faith. But simple faith sometimes isn't enough. The Irish people were often seen, indeed by some of their bishops, as not having a very developed sense of religion. So in, in both cases, there is a desire to... I suppose the best way of putting it is that people don't know what's good for them, and therefore if they complain, we will override this. And what is quite remarkable is that between Cumann Gael and Fianna Fáil, they disagreed on many things, but one thing they agreed about is that we will not roll back, we will extend the policy of using the national schools for reviving the Irish language, no matter what the parents have to say. But I digress slightly. Um, the point I want to make is that by the 1960s, you begin to see criticism from government organisations, from teachers' organisations and so forth. Now, if you're dealing with the question of how successful was this policy, by the 1950s, you see the highest level of compliance in various schools to teach through the medium of Irish, for example. But by the 1960s, you begin to see complaints, uh, something of a rollback of the policy. And it would take decades again for young people and indeed older people to decide that Irish was something that they might learn, they might embrace out of interest, rather than having it forced down their throats. So it's not the time to discuss whether it is a good policy or not to revive the Irish language, but I would say that the, means, the main means chosen to do it through the national schools was an absolute disaster. It tended to turn people off Irish, to make them see it as something that you needed to get a job in the civil service or to get promotion or, or so forth. Another area that criticism came from was from the Church of Ireland. Now, the Church of Ireland, as expressed through the Church of Ireland Gazette, had no quarrel with the revival of Irish. Their quarrel was with the nature of the teaching materials that were provided to all schools. They complained that it tended, that these books tended to assume Catholic practice and Catholic belief, and indeed that the language itself, and you can think of the salutations and greetings in Irish, tended to assume Catholic belief as well. So that was an area of a certain fractiousness, and it's sometimes been suggested 
that one of the reasons why we see a decline of the Protestant population in Ireland during these decades is the number of people who St. Eric's Bill didn't get through, the number of people who sent their children abroad to be educated because they would achieve a higher standard of education in other subjects and therefore their job opportunities, particularly in an international market, would be much better. To have a look at the question of making Ireland a more Catholic culture, I was suggesting that there's a certain distrust on the part of the bishops towards the public. And I would associate this very much with the Civil War. You're aware, of course, of the October 1922 pastoral, which was made, don't forget, at the request of government and and in time with the Public Safety Act and the amnesty of that year. The joint pastoral was denouncing the act of Republicans, that is, Republicans in arms, as murder and as robbery and as destruction and denying them the sacraments if they did not take advantage of the amnesty that was being offered. And this was a very, very fractious issue for Republicans, anti-treaty Republicans, and later into Fianna Fáil for a very long time. Now, many have made the point that they could have been a lot more upset about it than they were. But some of them were going to, Mary McSweeney, for example, was going to the Pope and saying, our bishops are behaving wrongly on this. Their view was that it was a just war. The bishop's view was that it was not a just war. The government was a legitimate government, the provisional government this is. It had been elected by the people, and therefore rebellion against it was just that, rebellion. It wasn't a just war at all. And this moment in which the church, in the the person of the bishops, legitimised the state is sometimes seen as absolutely crucial, that it was something like a blank cheque. What would become the Cumannagale government had been done a massive favour by the bishops and the bishops would look for something in return. Now that's rather an old-fashioned explanation, but nonetheless it's an interesting one. It's associated particularly, this idea that particularly Cumannagale, but later Fianna Fáil, were doing exactly what the bishops wanted when it came to legislation with regard to morality of various different kinds. It was first expressed really by John White in a book called Church and State in Modern Ireland in 1970. And it's a book that became very important and is still read, despite the fact that, one, it's very, very old now, and two, it was written before the archives were opened. Um, White was interested, as I say, the year was 1970, the troubles were starting. White was interested in the politics of divided societies, and particularly in Northern Ireland. And he was beginning to ask the question, Irish politicians and the Irish public, those in the South, are always attacking the Stormont government for its sectarianism. Is their image completely cleaner? Can we say that what was then the Irish Republic, by then the Irish Republic, uh, was not a sectarian state? So he looked at church-state relations with regard to legislation. And he made a list of pieces of legislation and other measures in which there had been direct communication between Catholic bishops and Dublin politicians. Uh, He made a list of those that included the effective ban on divorce in 1925, the censorship of films, the censorship of literature, and beyond that, looking at Fianna Fáil, the ban on contraceptives in 1935 and aspects of the 1937 constitution. And White famously referred to this as the Coral... Catholic moral code enshrined in the law of the land. And this is still an issue that interests historians, although the analysis has become, I think, somewhat more nuanced. But the overview, again, to be quick on this, there is a general acceptance, I think it's fair to say, that 
throughout the 1920s and up to the 1932 general election, Cumann Gael and Fianna Fáil were competing to see who could be seen as the more Catholic party. Um, certainly advice was taken on the effect of ban on divorce in 1925 and on a load of other measures. But again, it's important to recognise that other people were also interested, not just clergy people of all faiths, but also, for example, organisations interested in the welfare of mothers and children were very inf- interested in raising the age of consent, which was an issue that was being pushed for at the end of the 1920s. But the big issue was contraception. Um, under the Censorship of Publications Act 1929, the advocacy of contraception had been prevented, but contraceptives themselves were still available. This was something that absolutely the bishops were now pushing for. By the end of the 1920s, however, it became clear that Cumann would not oblige on this. Cumann attitude towards Irish Protestants is, I think, a complex one. Again, going back to that point I was making about their view of republicanism was that it was a republicanism that embraced every religious faith. Likewise, they had very strong views on probity in state business. It was wrong to give any advantage to any religion over another. And therefore, they were very cautious about and very careful of anything that might be seen as sectarian. Now, that doesn't mean they always got it right. Sometimes they got it very, very wrong, but it was something they were particularly careful of. And they knew that there had been Protestant voices raised in objection to the censorship legislation, for example, and therefore they were very cautious about the question of contraception. I think it's important to realise that moral values as between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants over contraception were not that different. Uh, People of both faiths, again, I'm generalising here, but people of, of all faiths tended to think that sex outside of marriage was wrong and therefore contraceptives should not be available to unmarried people. Whether contraception could be used for purposes of family planning, however, was a rather more complicated issue. Um, From a Catholic point of view, of course not, absolutely not. It could not be used for purposes of family planning or any other purposes. From the Church of Ireland's point of view, things were slightly different. On the one hand, in 1930, the Anglican Lambeth Council had changed what had been traditional Anglican teaching on contraception. Up to this point, it had been regarded as a very bad thing. But in 1930... I think it's best to say it was regarded by the Lambeth Council as possibly the lesser of two evils when it came to married couples where there might be health issues or matters of that kind um, if contraception was not available. So that was a different perspective from the Catholic perspective. But there's another element to this as well, and that is that for Irish Protestants, freedom of liberty of conscience was absolutely important. If the state is preventing liberty of conscience, that becomes a problem. It's actually a religious problem. Likewise, it was well known that the Catholic bishops had been consulted on the censorship legislation, and more to the point, perhaps, it was widely feared that the Catholic bishops had dictated the censorship legislation. They hadn't, but nonetheless, that was a very real fear. Uh, Cumann Gael, also, to be more practical about it, did not want to lose the Protestant vote. So they were not prepared to make changes. They were not prepared to ban contraceptives. And the question, of course, by that stage was, would would Fianna Fáil be prepared to ban contraceptives? Um, Fianna Fáil's relationship, when it was in opposition with the Catholic Church, is a very curious one. 
Bear in mind that most of them had been effectively, though not literally, excommunicated under the October 1922 pastoral. Um, but yet by the end of the 20s, they are very much making themselves clear to be the more Catholic party. Now that might be because they needed to get over the electoral disadvantage of having been denounced from the pulpit, but it might be, it might be because that was actually their, their belief. Um, there's a very interesting occasion in the Dáil when Patrick McGilligan announces that diplomatic relations with the Vatican have been opened, that a papal nuncio will be coming to Dublin. And Sean T. O'Kelly stands up in the Dáil and says, this is all very good news, but were the bishops consulted on this? Now, he knows full well the bishops hadn't been consulted. One of the reasons for getting a papal nuncio in was to try and control the bishops, but that's beside the point. Um, O'Kelly's point is, this is a matter that touches on religion as well as on politics and international relations. And if the bishops were consulted, I'm happy, but otherwise there are issues here, because he said, we in Fianna Fáil speak for the voice of Catholicism. And I think that is extraordinary, 10 years after effectively being excommunicated. But there's another important point here, and that is that, again, going back to the October pastoral, the point that the bishops were making was not that republicanism as a political philosophy, not that opposition to the treaty as a political position, not that either of those were irreligious. It was taking up arms in their name at that time and in that place that was a problem. By 1927, Fianna Fáil is a largely constitutional political party. It is effectively a constitutional political party. And therefore, there can be no criticism against Fianna Fáil. You cannot tell people do not vote for Fianna Fáil because of their republicanism. It's not an issue. So Fianna Fáil and the Catholic vote is up for grabs. And it is often debated as to which was, in fact, the more Catholic party. And that becomes a very complicated issue. In both cases, you have pieties. In both cases, very often, you have politicians who feel that they know quite as much about religion as the bishops do, and they're not going to be dictated to. Uh, but in any case, in opposition, Fianna Fáil may be the party that will um, ban contraception. In office, Fianna Fáil go one step further on a whole range of areas than Cumann and Gael have done. Uh, they introduce taxes on, on imported newspapers, for example, which is defended and justified on the basis that it is a revenue-raising issue. They were putting taxes on a lot of things, but it satisfies that voice that sees evil, threat to religion, threats to morality as coming from outside. Okay, The plain people will not be able to afford horrible English newspapers anymore. Um, they set up a commission to look into questions around the age of consent and eventually raise it, but only slightly, from 16 to 17. And under the legislation that does that, the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1935, contraceptives are also banned. Now, as I said, commissions had looked into this and they'd come up with a very handy solution, what would later be an Irish solution to an Irish problem, that contraceptives might be made available through me under medical advice uh, for purposes of family planning. But that doesn't happen in the 35 Act. Uh, contraceptives are simply banned. And again, Sean T. O'Kelly is the important character there. He reports to the Cabinet that he has had definitive advice that contraceptives must be banned. We've never discovered where the definitive advice came from, but I think we can guess. Of course, the question arises of why were the bishops so keen on legislation to improve morality? Whether you see that as encouraging or increasing Catholicism is a different matter. 
why did the bishops feel that Irish, the state of Irish morality, and specifically sexual morality, was in a state of crisis? This, again, is something that historians have been debating for many years. Uh, Tom Garvin, for example, a political scientist, referred to it simply as fear of the modern. Every generation is worried about and upset about what the young people are getting up to. And the signs of modernity for that generation in the 1920s were considerable. The cinema, which was very much based on a musical tradition, it was sometimes uh, fairly robust in its humour, for example, um, contraceptive devices, as I've mentioned. But there was also, I think, it's very important to bear in mind what happens with the Civil War. Look again at the October Pastoral. To a certain extent, the bishops are simply denouncing the young men who are in arms, and they talk largely about men, very little reference to women there at all. They're talking about the young men who are in arms, and they attack some of them as um, vain and arrogant and so forth. But they've also got a very strong element of sympathy. You were the good people, you were the people who fought the British, but now you've been misled uh, into thinking that you should continue in arms, whereas, of course, you should not. Now, bear in mind, this is being read out, as I said, in churches all over Ireland. People with Republican sympathies and perhaps Republican activities sitting beside their mammies in the church and presumably getting an elbow in the ribs while this is going on. You might assume, and perhaps the bishops assumed, we don't know, that there would be an immediate ceasefire. But there wasn't. In other words, the people were not obeying their bishops. And I think that gave the bishops a dreadful fright afterwards. You know, this generation is problematic. Other historians have mentioned uh, the rollback of female public activity in the 1920s and 30s, which I'm not going to talk about particularly, but some have seen the attack on uh, the concerns about, rather, morality at this time as being, again, an anti-feminist measure, putting the women back in the kitchen by controlling their behaviour. Um, I think the Civil War point is, is rather more important, but either way, there's this distrust of the people and particularly of the young people. So, so far, I've been talking about Catholicism in a very negative way, things you should not do and things the bishops are trying to make you not do, whether it be sex or Republican uh, activities in arms. But I think it's worth making the point that Catholicism, in particularly in the early 1930s, was very different from what we might think of or what I think we can imagine in some ways. And I'm not talking here just simply about the fact that religion, and by that I don't just mean Catholicism, but any Christian religion in Ireland, was based on a very real belief in heaven and hell and for a Catholic belief that adhering to the teachings of and taking guidance from and receiving the sacraments in the Catholic Church was the way to ensure that you had eternal life rather than eternal damnation. That was very real for people in a way I think it's difficult for many people to understand today. But additionally, um, Catholicism in the 1930s was going through a very upbeat phase. The Catholic social movement uh, and associated with the papal encyclical or the papal letter to the faithful quadragesimal anno that came out in 1931. There had been previous papal encyclicals dealing with the same thing, which was essentially about class relations. The papal encyclical Rerum Novarum in the 19th century had looked at the relationship between capital and labour and where the Catholic Church stood on this. And to sum up briefly, it was suggesting that while there were all kinds of wrongs associated with socialism, there were also all kinds of wrongs associated with um, unrestrained capitalism. And it was offering Catholicism as a sort of a middle way 
between the materialistic philosophies of socialism and capitalism. In 1931, the encyclical Quadragesimo Anno, marking 40 years after Rerum Novarum, was very influential in Ireland. And it was foreshadowing a new world in which class warfare would be avoided, Catholicism would be embraced, and Catholic action would be embraced. The way in which, as an individual, as a business, as a community, you would strive to make Catholicism more visible uh, in your everyday life. Thus, for example, if you were a business person and a Catholic, you would strive to be a very ethical business person. Now, again, I think it's worth saying that there are inclusive and exclusive aspects to that. Uh, for anybody to bring their faith and their values and so forth into their business, I think must be seen as a good thing. But sometimes there's simply a sectarian element to that or an anti-Semitic element to that. We support our own. But be that as it may, the 19, 1930s was a period internationally a kind of a high point for Catholicism. As many people who were attracted by socialism but then moved away from it looked at Catholicism. I'm talking here about um, converts to Catholicism and high profile. It was fashionable. Uh, Catholicism was fashionable in celebrity circles, for example. And certainly from an Irish perspective, many, again, lay as well as, um, as, well as religious figures were reinventing their own religion. They were becoming interested in Catholic social theory. They were becoming interested in Catholic economics and also sometimes getting in more enthusiastic about Irish Catholicism. As I said, there'd always been this emphasis on Irish Catholicism as a simple faith. Uh, not particularly artistically distinguished, not particularly intellectually distinguished, though solid as a bone. But now, for very many Irish thinkers, and I'm thinking particularly of people like Ada Block and Michael Tierney, they're considering that we are not just Irish Catholics. We are part of the universal church. We are part of European Catholicism. We have a long tradition of artistic and intellectual endeavour, of music, of art. Uh, we must make the people more familiar with this. So there's a very outward-looking, although within the Catholic world, element to aspects of Irish theology and social thinking at this time. Now, to a large extent, I think, the Eucharistic Congress of 1932, it, it, the fact that it took place in Dublin in 1932 is no more than coincidental, the fact that Catholic social thinking was beginning to take off in Ireland. A question that very often comes up on the Leaving Cert is about the significance of the Eucharistic Congress for church and state. So two points there that I would make. First of all, when you're talking about the state, it's not a state event, it's a church event. It's also not a national event, it's a Dublin event. Now, that latter point doesn't matter to a great extent. Dublin is the capital and people throughout the country became interested in, evolved in, enthusiastic about the Eucharistic Congress, certainly seeing it, <coughs> excuse me, as an Irish event. But the fact that it's a church event is, is very important here. While governments and both governments were involved, um, Cumann Gael was government when the plans were being made. Fianna Fáil, of course, took over just before the event. Um, Cumann Gael were very careful about not using too much or not using um, public monies improperly, which they would have seen facilitating and financing, rather, a church event such as the Eucharistic Congress. Uh, Fianna Fáil, when they came into office, really reaped the rewards of the Eucharistic Congress. They were there for all the photo opportunities. But at the same time, um, were 
restricted in what they thought could reasonably be done. There is some debate over whether Fianna Fáil were able to or were willing to go one step further than coming a gale. But nonetheless, the state takes a hands-off approach to it. Um, the people will attend when there are dignitaries and so forth. They will certainly, as Catholics, attend the various, um, the various events of the Congress. There are two points I think that I will make, that I would like to make, because I think they're very important about the Eucharistic Congress. One is, remember, of course, it is a spiritual event. It is a huge spiritual event. Um, again, don't forget the religion when you're talking about relations between the church and the people, or relations between the church and the state. Second of all, it's a massive party. And I think it's important to note that there had not been a public celebration of Irish independence. The two main political parties disagreed on the date in which they would have that in any case. But the Eucharistic Congress is the first time people are coming together and celebrating something Irish. I'm talking, of course, about Irish Catholics here. Um, it's also an opportunity to showcase Ireland and the world. Yes, they are showing Ireland to the rest of the Catholic world, but they are showing Ireland to the world generally. People will come. People will consider whether they might have a holiday there in the future. People will buy gifts and, and trinkets to take home with them. They will see what Ireland is all about. So it is an opportunity to showcase Ireland, yes, in the interests of commerce, in the interests of tourism, all of those things. But also, it is the first time, in one sense, that independent Ireland has been seen on the world stage. And that's very much an important part of Irish foreign policy. Of course, involvement in the League of Nations has brought Ireland onto the world stage. But people are often confused about Ireland's relationship with Britain, and many people aren't that interested in the League of Nations anyway. But here we have the newsreels in Dublin showing off this independent Ireland, Irish state. Many newspapers have headlines such as Greatest Day in Irish History. Whether people share that or not, there is a great deal of enthusiasm there. The writer G.K. Chesterton was in Dublin for the event and reported on how moved he was by the degree to which even the poorest people had tried to decorate their homes to celebrate the event. So that's the first point, I think. It's, it's, it's a big party, it's an exciting event. It is important for foreign policy. We are going to be seen on the world stage. The kind of Ireland that is shown on the world stage is important too. There are very traditional and Catholic aspects to the material culture of the Eucharistic Congress, but it's also an opportunity to show how modern we are. There is a famous photograph of an overflight as the um, papal legate comes into Dublin. There's a cruciform flyover, and I've very often shown it to students who have kind of tittered and gone how naff that is. But one, it would have been done in any other mainly Catholic country in Europe. And two, this is a way of saying we have an air force and they are really good at flying. It is not easy, I am told, uh, to fly in cruciform. So it's a way of showing off Ireland. It's a way of uniting people regardless of their politics. Uh, it is a way of celebrating independence. It is also a way of comparing Christ and Ireland because this is something that I, that I think is important. In addition to all the partying elements, in addition to the famous singing, in addition, of course, to the masses, what you also have are workshops and seminars on theology. And the theme that comes up time and time again from people, uh, people speaking at these worship, workshops is crucifixion and resurrection. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, which, of course, is, is relevant to the Eucharistic Congress, part of the real presence, about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but also the number of speakers, very often Irish-American, who are talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Ireland. 
And that parallel, I think, is enormously important.